want to tell you a story about Captain Henry Dempsey. In 1987, he was the captain of a Beechcraft 99 aircraft. It's a commuter plane, seats 15 to 20 people. And uh, he and his co-pilot were flying an empty plane, fortunately, about 5,000 feet above the coast of Maine. And he heard this rattling coming from the back, and he was wondering to himself, you know, what's causing this noise back there? And so he handed the controls over to the co-pilot, and he vacated the captain's seat, and he went back, and the door was not secured. Now, in some of the commuter planes, maybe you've been on these, uh, some of the doors actually act as steps, and they just deploy down. They don't touch the ground. They're about this high off the ground, and you just grab some flimsy rails, and you just step up the, the um, steps, and then when the flight's ready to go, they just pull it in and uh, secure it. So it was rattling, and as he went to secure it, uh, they hit some turbulence, and as a result of that, he fell into the door, and it deployed all the way down. The co-pilot could tell something had happened because the indicator light came on that the door had popped open and obviously air pressure and all the things that go with that. So immediately he radioed for help. He gave the coordinates and he said, you better send a helicopter to see if you can find his body somewhere down in the ocean. There's no way that, you know, he survived all of this. And so the co-pilot turns the plane around and lands in Portland, Maine and is in is completely shocked and surprised as well as the ground crew because uh, Captain Dempsey had not fallen totally out of the plane, just most of the way. He was actually stretched out over those steps and that doorway, his feet still in the plane, the rest of his body gripping those steps. He landed with his face 12 inches above the pavement. And the firefighters said it took them several minutes to pry his fingers loose. It would have taken the jaws of life to pry my fingers loose. I just cannot even imagine going through something so harrowing as that. Well, I want to welcome you to the last message in our series called Turbulence, How to Climb Above the Adversities of Life. If you've missed any of them, you can go online and you can uh, watch those messages and catch up. But just to kind of uh, tell you where we've been, we began our series by talking about the importance of prayer and how prayer is one of the ways that we get above the adversity or the turbulence that we face in our lives. And then we talked about Elijah and how he went through so much turbulence. And Elijah had to learn that the battle wasn't his. And so we also have to learn to turn our battles over to God and just be still sometimes in the midst of all the noise to try to hear God's voice telling us to be faithful. And then last weekend, we looked at worries. And we said, you can either spend your time worrying about your worries, or you can focus on God. You can fo focus on his love, receiving his love, and walking in his ways and pursuing his purposes in life, and not allow worries to distract you and, and consume your life. But what happens when you're thrown out of control? What happens when um, you're in the captain's seat of your life and all of a sudden you're not there anymore and you just feel like you're 12 inches away from absolute disaster? Fortunately, God gives us examples in the Bible of people who have gone through these 
really traumatic kinds of experiences. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I feel like I'm in one right now, or I know someone who's in one right now. Then you really need to read the story of Joseph carefully. Now, I've spoken on Joseph before, and so I'm not going to go into detail about his life, but I do want to remind you about his life. And in case he's kind of new to you, maybe you're newer to faith, I hope you'll be inspired to read about his life later on. We're going to start, though, with Joseph when he was about 17 years of age. How many of you remember being 17? Yes, all right. For some of us, it's many hairs ago, but anyway. Um, 17. He has 10 older brothers, and he has one younger brother. And the 10 older brothers hate his guts. question is, why do they hate Joseph so much? Well, one big reason is because he's his father's favorite son. And everybody knows it because his dad had this beautiful multicolored coat made for him so that Whenever Joseph wore that thing, he was like a walking rainbow. And it was a reminder to them, that's dad's favorite. That's dad's favorite. Secondly, he was a bit of a tattletale. Any of you grow up with a tattletale like I did? All right, yes. How many of you are the oldest child in the family? You know what that's like, right? Because younger siblings just can't keep their mouth shut. But anyway... Um, he had, you know, he would tell his father whatever his brothers did wrong, and they did a lot of wrong. So they were always in trouble with the old man because he was always talking about what they were doing. And thirdly, he was a dreamer. God gave him dreams, and he shared his dreams with his brothers, and the essence of his dreams meant someday you guys are going to bow to me. So they really hated him. They really hated him. And one day they got their opportunity to get even with him. His dad sent him at the age of 17 to go find his brothers who were watching the family flock and to just kind of check on them. And when they saw him coming a distance away, they wanted to kill him. But instead, what they did is they sold him into slavery. And he ends up in Egypt. And he ends up in the household of a man by the name of Potiphar, who's like the captain of Pharaoh's secret service, his guards. And Potiphar must have had quite the household because he had many different servants. And God's favor was with Joseph, and so Potiphar recognizes that, and he puts him in charge of all his household, everybody and everything. And even though it's not a good situation, he's, he's a slave, he's not at home, he's in dire, difficult circumstances, it's at least not really bad. It's, it's kind of getting better, but there's a problem. There's a cougar in the house. And her name is Mrs. Potiphar. As one preacher I heard years ago called her Mrs. Hotifer. Anyway, because she had the hots for Joseph. Joseph was young. Joseph was handsome. Joseph was strong. Sounds like a Minnesota guy, doesn't he? And uh, every day, every day, she would try to seduce him, and every day he would say, no, 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 no. Well, one day he was in the house alone with her. That's not good. And she grabbed him by his coat. She said, sleep with me. And he literally ran out of his coat. And she was very upset and angry. And so when her husband came home, she said, to her husband, you know that Hebrew slave you brought in this household? He tried to rape me today. 
And that made Potiphar angry, and, and then Potiphar had him thrown into prison. One of the interesting things, uh, just this real quick little step aside, a lot of scholars wrestle with that because Joseph should have been killed. I mean, that's what Potiphar should have done. That's normally what he would have done. So there's some speculation that maybe he had a sense that the whole story was not a true story, but that's an aside. He ends up in this prison, and God's favor is with him again. And so the warden of the prison puts him in charge of all the other prisoners, and he's there for at least two years. And one day some new prisoners show up, and one of them is the butler that works for Pharaoh, like secretary. The other one is the baker, and Joseph gets to know them, and one day they, they don't look quite right, and he wonders what's going on, and they say, we've had these dreams, we don't know what it means. Joseph said, God knows the meaning of dreams, tell me. <clears throat> so they tell him the dreams, and he says, and I'm paraphrasing, I've got good news and bad news. He says to the butler, the good news is you're going to be taken out of prison and restored to your position. When you get in front of Pharaoh, please, please, please remember me, plead my case, get me out of here, I'm an innocent man. Then he looks at the baker and he says, I got bad news for you. You're going to be taken out of the prison, but you're also going to be executed. And everything Joseph says comes true because it was interpreted, given to him by God. Well, one of the saddest verses in the whole story of Joseph, in my mind, is the verse that simply says that the butler, when he got out of prison and was restored to his position, did not remember Joseph. So he spends more time in the prison. Well, one day Pharaoh has a couple of dreams. And he doesn't know what the dreams mean. And no wise person in Egypt can figure out the dreams either. Suddenly the secretary, the butler's mind is jarred. And he goes, oh yeah, Joseph, Joseph. He said, I met this guy in prison. And he was able to tell me what I had dreamed. And everything he said came true. So Pharaoh says, go get him, bring him here. So up comes Joseph, he's cleaned up. Imagine he put a new coat on him. His coat always got him into trouble, but not this time. He says for Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, I had these dreams, you know what they mean? And Joseph in essence says, I don't, God does tell me your dreams. And so Joseph explains, your dreams mean this. There's going to be seven bountiful years of harvest in Egypt, followed by seven years of a terrible, horrible famine. You better prepare, you better save. Pharaoh looks around and he goes, my goodness, who else is wiser than this guy? So Pharaoh takes this non-Egyptian, this former slave turned prisoner, and elevates him to the vice president of Egypt, the second most powerful man in the world. Well, one day, Joseph's brothers come to town to buy grain because the famine has spread all the way up to Canaan. They never expect to see or hear from Joseph again. He's either dead or a slave someplace. They come walking in town. They walk right by Joseph. They don't recognize him, but boy, does he recognize them. Now, wouldn't you like to be Joseph at that point? Joseph does toy with them a little bit, but finally he just can't control himself anymore. And that's where I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn open to Genesis chapter 45. <clears throat> Let's just pick up a, a few verses, first uh, first eight verses of Genesis chapter 45. Here's what it says. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? Joseph. 
But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me there, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it is not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Wow, I love that story. I love that story. I mean, Joseph was flung away from his family, right? Flung out of everything that he had known. Dangling over danger for so many years there in Egypt. And at the very end, he teaches us a powerful truth for our own dangling moments. For our own periods when we feel so flung away from God and flung away from the familiar. He teaches us that suffering is never wasted when you're a child of God. He teaches us that our hardship and our difficulties are not useless when we are, when we are the children of God. He teaches us that every bit of suffering, whether it's suffering we bring on ourselves because of poor choices we make, sins we commit, or suffering by living in a, just a sinful world or, or things that are done to us, in God's hands, it can become redemptive. So what do you mean by redemptive? What I mean by that is if I allow God to use the suffering that I experience in my life, he can use it to point to his son Jesus. So whatever his son Jesus is pointed to, things happen. God is glorified, and he gives me purpose in life. Maybe you don't see this, but if you look carefully at the text, if you look at the life of Joseph, you know, his life always pointed to Jesus. He's an amazing character. People who study the Bible tell us that he's a shadow of the Messiah. That is, he's a type of who Jesus would be. Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, his little commentary on Joseph, tells us some of the similarities between Joseph and Jesus, how Joseph's life pointed to Jesus' life. Look at Joseph. He's his father's favorite son. Look at Jesus. He is the father's only son, and his father loves him. Read John chapter 5 sometime. And he loves his father. Joseph is sent on a mission by his father to go and see what's going on with his family. Jesus is sent on a mission by his father to go and see what's going on with the human family. Jesus, uh, Joseph is despised, rejected, conspired against by his own family. I think about some of the, our, our global partners that particularly those who are nationals living in other countries, and, and they know, if I said that, they would be able to go, I know that, I know what that feels like. I've been rejected. I've been turned in by my family for becoming a follower of Christ. Jesus knows what it's like to be despised and rejected and conspired against by his family. He says he came unto his own and his own received them not. He was rejected by them. Joseph was falsely accused. He was roughed up. He's led away in chains. He was a slave. Then he was, then he was a, um, a, a prisoner. 
in many ways, Joseph suffered. You think about this. Joseph suffered for the sins of others. Jesus, same thing. Jesus is despised. He's rejected. He's falsely accused. He's beaten. He's not put in a prison. He's put in a tomb. He's crucified, and his dead body's placed in a tomb. And he dies for the sins of others. Dies for the sins of others. Joseph is taken out of that prison. He's raised up. And in essence, he's seated at the right hand of Pharaoh, second most powerful man in the world. Jesus is raised to the dead. And he's seated at the right hand of God, the Messiah. Let's read in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 for my quiet time this morning. I was reminded that he's coming back again. Did you know that, by the way? I'm not sure as believers we really believe that. I mean, a lot of us seem pretty comfortable living in this world. But I am here to tell you, he's coming back again. Amen? Yeah. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said on his way to the cross, and will he find any who are still faithful? That's a different sermon. I gotta get back, all right? This is bonus time for 11 a.m., okay? All right. Um, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Joseph redeems Egypt and his own people. Jesus redeems the world by his blood shed on the cross. So you, you look at Joseph's life, you go, maybe you've seen this before, read this before, but it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Like his whole life was like this big sign pointing to Jesus. Now he didn't understand that. He never understood that. As far as he could tell, the only redemptive thing he did was backwards. It was to redeem Egypt, redeem his people. But he's pointing forward to the great redeemer. But you and I, we see the whole arc of the story. So what we know is that our lives are for his followers, then our lives are redemptive too. Did you know that? How you live your life either points away from or to Jesus. And so all of a sudden, that verse that you know, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, has huge implications, has huge meanings now, doesn't it? Joseph literally took up his cross and followed Jesus. By the way, you ever notice the story of Joseph? He never complains, he's never bitter, he's never angry. Now, either all that was left out, or he just so believed in the sovereignty of God. I want to believe in the sovereignty of God that way, too. I want, my, I want to look at my life and say, everything that happens to me, everything that happens to me serves a redemptive purpose. I can let it I can let it work in my life to point toward Jesus and bring glory and honor to him. See, when we suffer, there are usually two questions we will end up asking. One is, why me? That question is just filled with fear and doubt, isn't it? I've asked it, how about you? Why me? Or if it's not been for me, I've looked at somebody else who suffered, you know, someone I love, somebody I know, and I go, why him, why her, why them? But the other question we can ask is, God, what do you want to do with this? How are you going to use this redemptively to glorify yourself, God? How are you going to, how are you going to show off <laughs> through what's going on through my life? How will this point to you? I can't wait to see. Now, normally I think what happens is we start with the why me question, fear and doubt, and we move to the what question, faith and courage. I think that's how it works in a lot of our lives. And that's okay. Just don't get stuck in the why me. And I know people who are stuck in the why me. And that's not a good place to stay because it makes you bitter. And actually, you end up pointing away from Jesus, not pointing to Jesus. 